The title of this message is called Bread of the Presence. Bread of the Presence. What is your favorite bread? Just think about that for a minute. Let that simmer in the oven. When Jamie and I were dating, we would go out to a lot of different restaurants. If you're dating right now, you probably know what I'm talking about. You go out to eat. And we would go to restaurants, and we would decide if we liked the restaurant, oftentimes based on how good their bread was. You know, it's like, where are we going to go out to eat? Oh, yeah, let's go back there. I love their bread. You know what I'm talking about? You with me on this? Some of you are. And sometimes bread can even get a little nostalgic because my grandmother was born in Italy. She made the best ever masticcioli. No offense to your grandmas, okay? But you got to have good bread with masticcioli, don't you? I mean, Italians, right? So one symbol that we use, one sign, if you will, that, that bread is important, that it's delicious, the universal sign of deliciousness. Everybody do this with me. Oh, so good. Yes. Some of you are like, no, I'm not doing it. You're like, if, if I asked you to raise your hand, come on, just raise your hand, you'll not do it, I know. But this is easy. So good. So good. Bread is so good. Does the Bible talk about bread? You're like, what's this pastor talking about bread for? Like, I'm just hungry right now. All right, we're already saying we are hungry. We are thirsty. What are you doing to me? Does the Bible talk about bread? Yeah, it talks about bread a lot. It talks about bread and it has a good, re- good meaning, good reason for it. So when you read your Bible, notice I didn't say if, when. When you read your Bible, you'll realize, man, bread's talked about quite a bit in some different places. Because it wasn't just a staple food like it is for us. It, it has spiritual meanings. And I want to talk to you about those today. I want to share that with you. Because we're in Exodus, we're actually finishing it up, and we've already seen an Exodus, if you remember, if you were here, and you can go back and see that on our, on our YouTube channel, but you already, you already learned that God, when the Israelites were out in the desert, God snowed, I, I would say it looked more like snow than rain, he snowed manna from the heavens, and then it, it, it landed on the ground, and it, it looked sort of like you know, kind of like white, you know, dew on the ground. And it was like coriander seed, they say, in the Bible. And so it's, it's manna, and, and it, they could make bread from it. And they made bread from it every day. And so they didn't really know what it was, and so the word for what's that, or what is it, is the word manna. So that's what manna means. What is it? And it was something that they could make bread with for 40 years while they wandered around the desert. That's what sustained them. And it was really a foreshadowing of something greater to come. You should know that. Much of what we see in the Old Testament, as I've been pointing out, just like last week, the high priest was a foreshadowing of our great high priest, Jesus. And so here today, we're going to see that bread, this bread that was in the tabernacle, pointed forward to Jesus. And uh, in the tabernacle, there was furniture. I think you'll like this if you've ever read the Old Testament and ever wondered, and maybe you've thought about it before, like, what is this tabernacle which became permanent, it became a temple, 
And of course, I mentioned to you that this temple will be rebuilt by the Jewish people whenever they can get their land back in Israel. Um, it's currently occupied um, by uh, the Dome of the Rock, the Muslims, and so this is a very important to them to rebuild this temple. But in the original, the tabernacle, in Exodus 25, there was a special table made of acacia wood. Uh, much of the furnishings were made from this wood because they were in the desert. So I have pictures for you. You like pictures, right? Yes. So here's a picture of a, an acacia tree. And this tree was really, really dense. And so it wouldn't rot out very easily. And so they made much of the furniture that they um, built this tabernacle with out of acacia wood, out of the acacia tree. And one of those furnishings was a, was a table that they put the bread on. And that table, next picture, is the one that I have as sort of the, the backdrop here. And that is the bread on it. And they would have poles so that they could carry the table. Same poles that they used to carry the Ark of the Covenant, which I'll talk about next week. But this, um, this, this table was inside of the holy place. So I have one more picture here to show you. And it's kind of hard unless you're really close up to see. But that's sort of like a, a snapshot, if you will, or like a kind of a cutaway into the whole tabernacle. You can see the veil is separating the holy place from the most holy place. And you see where the priest is standing. He's standing at the table of incense. He's burning the incense there. Frankincense is what he's burning. And then uh, behind him to his right is the table of, of, uh, the, where the bread of the presence is. And then next to that is the, uh, what we call today the menorah, the golden lampstand. And then behind that veil is the Ark of the Covenant with the mercy seat on top. So that's the cutaway, if you will. But in Exodus 25, 30, Moses was instructed by God, you shall set the bread of the presence on the table before me regularly. Now, depending on what translation you've read in the past, you might have, it might not have translated as bread of the presence. Maybe it was show bread. Or maybe really old school, shoe bread. I'm not eating shoe bread. All right, I don't know about you. Seems like it wouldn't smell very good. You got you to gotta roll with me here, all right? I got lots. I got lots. The showbread was not for show. The priests would actually eat the showbread every week. Now, what's the reason? Why is it called this bread of the presence? Why showbread? Why bread of the presence? And to me, the simple answer is because it was in the presence of the Lord. You can see where it's, it's, put, it's put in the presence of the Lord. It's in the holy place, right next to the most holy place, which is where God would dwell on the Ark of the Covenant. But there's more to it than this. There's a lot, a lot more to it. Let me give you a little detail about the bread itself. I think it's interesting. Levit Leviticus actually tells us this in chapter 24. So a few verses in Leviticus 24, 5. How do you make this bread? God was very detailed in everything, and he gave him detailed instructions on how to make this bread. He said in verse 5, you shall take fine flour, and you shall bake 12 loaves from it, and two-tenths of an ephah shall be in each loaf. Now that measurement of flour means nothing to you, nor does it to me. What's an ephah? Nobody knows, unless you look it up. But when I looked it up, I found out that the amount of flour used for each loaf would create, would bake, a loaf of bread that weighs 11 pounds. 
Now, there's a lot of bakeries around here. Nobody's making an 11-pound loaf of bread, as far as I know. But that's how much it weighed. There was 12 of them. Verse 6, you shall set them in two piles, six in a pile, on the table of pure gold before the Lord. So you look at that bread and you see in what you would think would be something like kind of small and tiny, just a simple pita bread. No, these are 11 pound. And if, you know, my math is right, and by now you know it is. 16 years of teaching math, I hope I can do 12 times 11. 132 pounds of bread is on that table. Okay? So, uh, uh, it says in verse 7, just to give you a little more detail, they would put frankincense on each pile so that when the priest would go in, he could burn the uh, the frankincense. It would go with the bread as a memorial portion. It's a food offering to the Lord. They were offering this to the Lord. Every Sabbath day, verse 8, Aaron, the high priest, will arrange it before the Lord It's from the people of Israel as a covenant, a promise forever. Verse 9, it shall be for Aaron and his sons, and they shall eat it in a holy place, since it's from the most holy portion out of the Lord's food offerings, it's perpetually due. So they gave this bread to the Lord as an offering every Sabbath, every Saturday. Now God doesn't need food, he's spirit, he doesn't eat food, so he just gave it right back to the priests, because the priests were in charge of it, and so they ate it in the presence of the Lord. It kind of reminds me of this one church experience I had as a teenager, as a young teenager. Our family attended an Episcopal church in West Branch, Michigan, uh, downtown uh, West Branch. It could still be there. I don't know. I haven't been up there in a little while. But I became an altar boy uh, when I was in middle school at this church, and we didn't stay there too long, but we were there um, for, for several Sundays. And as I was an altar boy, I had to be on stage. And the priest would do um, what he did. And during communion, he would bless the bread, which I think was wafers. Um, but apparently, if I found this out later, if he blesses the bread... He has to eat it. It has to all be eaten on that day. Well, I didn't know that. And I'm on stage. And and I don't know if somebody miscalculated. Every week, I love Christine. She does our communion. She prepares it. And she asks me every time, or not every week, every once a month when we have communion, she asks me, I hope we have enough bread. This is important. She wants to get it. How many people do you think are going to be here for communion, right? Well, I don't think they asked that, that week up in West Branch because at the end of communion, there was this giant plate of bread left over. And he's got to eat it. So he turns around, you know, to be discreet from all of the people. But I'm right here, and I'm looking at him. You've seen Cookie Monster eat cookies on Sesame Street? That's my visual. I'm scarred for life, okay, from this situation. I thought, man, lunch is 15 minutes away. Can't you just wait a little longer? But I understand now. Seriously, though, imagine, imagine the high priest and his um, priests, his sons, having to eat 132 pounds of bread every single 
week. Man, I hope they had a good workout plan. I hope Aaron led them through some calisthenics or something. Um, maybe a membership at uh, Desert Fitness or something. I don't know. But like 132 pounds of bread, that's a lot of bread. You might recall an incident that King David had with this showbread, this bread. If you've read 1 Samuel before, he encountered a situation where he was running, uh, kind of in, in hiding. From, he was the anointed, he was going to be the king. Um, he came to the priest, he came to the, the tabernacle. The bread, uh, the, came to the priest and said, we're hungry, we're starving. And the priest said, well, you can't, I don't have any bread you can eat. You can't eat the, the show bread. He goes, um, but if you've been set apart, if you're holy, if you've, you can. And so he gave it to him. And, and I always wondered, like I was a little bit confused. Let me read it to you first. First Samuel 21, verse 6, just one verse here. The priest gave him the holy bread, the bread of the presence. There was no bread, but there was this bread of the presence. And it says, it's removed from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day it's taken away. Now, when I read that, I didn't really grasp it because I hadn't studied really Exodus and what's going on. But now I have, and I understand it. See, the bread sits out all week, and it's eaten on the Sabbath day. So really, the priests are eating week-old bread um, when they eat it. And then as they, as they take it off the table, the high priest is, is replacing it with fresh bread. Seems like you'd want to, you know eat the fresh bread, but that's the way it had to be. And so now I understand that when David showed up there, he was basically, the bread is always there. It's always in the presence of the Lord. And so when he showed up, that's why there was bread there, because it's always there. When they take it away and eat it on Saturday, they replace it immediately with fresh bread. So that is um, an interesting um, image for us and for Israel, because that's how they got closer to God. Imagine sharing a meal with God. Like I always try to talk about communion and say, imagine you know, you're, with, you're one of those disciples and you're sharing a meal with Jesus. When we take communion, it's similar to what we're doing. But imagine sharing a meal with God. Why would God want to eat a meal with the high priests in the tabernacle? And it's the same reason why God wants to have a relationship with you. He loves you. He created you. He made you in his image. And he likes to spend time with you. Like, that's a really special thing when you think about that. When we get together with friends, especially if we haven't been together in a while, we usually get together around a meal. Hey, let's get together and have a meal. Let's get lunch. Let's have breakfast. Let's have a cup of coffee. Let's, it's usually around food, isn't it? Because we like food, because we like to be together and, and do that and celebrate. Family dinners are probably important to you. But right here, God shows he's willing to share a meal with you. He's willing to, to sit down and, and, and spend time with you. I think, that's, that's, I think that's wonderful. But that's not where the spiritual significance ends. Okay? In prayer, we're going to talk about prayer first. Jesus talked about prayer. The disciples asked Jesus. I mean, if you're going to ask somebody about prayer, how to pray, ask Jesus. The disciples asked them, Jesus, how do we pray? Well, he answered it. He said, this is, a, this is how you pray. Now, some, some churches recite this prayer over and over again, which sometimes when you recite something, you don't think about it and you lose the meaning of it. 
Jesus said this prayer, I think, as a model for us as a way to pray. And in Matthew 6.11, Jesus said, Give us this day, I know a lot of you know the end, what? Our daily bread. That's right. And it's a model for basically saying, when you pray, ask God to take care of you today. Ask God to provide for you today. The Israelites, that manna came down every day. I'm sure they woke up and they prayed before their eyes even opened. God, I hope we got food today. And they went outside their tent and they looked. Yes, thank you, God. We got food today. Every day. It was a test of obedience, of faith. Do you trust God every single day? That's what Jesus was teaching in that prayer. Trust me, every day. Tomorrow, that's got enough trouble on its own, doesn't it? Today. Focus on today. God, what do you have for me today? Trust in God is a daily exercise. It's a daily prayer to ask God what we need. Not what we want, but what we need. And Jesus didn't uh, just talk about uh, daily bread. Uh, He also talked about him being the bread, the bread of life, in John chapter 6. In the Gospel of John chapter 6, Jesus had a following because he did some amazing things. He did some miracles. He did some healings. And in one case, he fed 5,000 people, plus, probably, more than that, from a little bit of bread and a few fish. little boy brought a packed lunch, and Jesus took that and multiplied it and fed them. Now, they were following Jesus for the free meal, for more free food. But Jesus said, I didn't do that so that I could feed you bread. This is what he said in John 6, 26. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, that's how you know Jesus is serious. If you see verily, verily, or truly, truly, here comes the truth. Pay attention. I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Don't work for food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. They were following him for the free food. He was saying, I got something much greater for you. This is pointing to something much bigger. Now they compare Jesus to Moses. Are you as good as our beloved Moses? John 6.31 Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And there he is Moses. And Jesus corrects them and says, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you this bread from heaven. It was my Father who gave you the true bread from heaven. And it was a foreshadowing of something greater. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Well, who came from heaven and gave life to the world? Jesus. Verse 34, they said sarcastically probably to him, well, give us this bread always then. Sir, and Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And he's not talking about the bread we eat. He's talking about spiritual bread for your spiritual hunger. He's the bread of life. Jesus became the bread of the presence. 
That bread of the presence in the tabernacle was pointing to Jesus the whole time. There are Jewish people that still don't believe it. They don't accept Jesus as their Messiah, as the bread of life. Just like 2,000 years ago when they were in his presence and watched him do the miracle. They didn't believe. And many still don't believe. Well, Jesus also said something in this particular passage in the Gospel of John that really goes against the popular ideology of today. There's lots of ideologies and what I would consider many to be false teaching. One of the false teachings of today is that all roads lead to heaven. Everybody's going to get there eventually. Religions, doesn't matter what religion you are. Good person, good people, everybody's going to heaven. That's the teaching, the understanding of many today. And some people you just can't argue with. And there's a reason why. I find this very interesting. I I was just listening to one of my favorite preachers. He since passed away this year, Tim Keller. Tim Keller said, truth is no longer outside of us. It's now inside of us. He said, you used to be able to you know, argue with someone, talk with someone about truth, what the truth is, because everybody was looking for truth outside of them. You know, whatever your religion was, you were looking outside of that. You were going outside. But in our culture today, we believe truth is inside of us. And that's a problem. Because that means identity is now deity. Just think about that. A person's identity is now deity, God. And that's what a lot of people think, is that their truth is their truth. And you can't argue with them. You can't say, no, 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 look, it's not, out, it's not in you, it's outside of you. Jesus taught something about truth. He said in John 14, 6, I am the way, I am, to say it with me, the truth, and the life. But Jesus said, I'm the truth. Now, I didn't come up with that. That's not inside of me. That's the truth, though. And so we have these, uh, as Tim Keller put it, these headwinds. It's harder to talk with people about the gospel, the good news, because now you're talking to somebody who thinks that they know the truth because the truth is inside of them, and you can't argue with that. Their identity is their deity. It's kind of scary. Jesus also said that in John 6, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. I find this to be comforting as someone who likes to share their faith and try to lead people to Christ because... Um, when we argue with people or when we discuss with people the truth, um, there's something that has to happen here. Jesus said something that something is God has to lead them. Nobody can go to the Father unless they go through Jesus. He's the way. And nobody can become a follower of Jesus truly unless God the Father draws him. There's, there's two interesting truths there. So, in essence... There's no way that all roads lead to heaven. There's only one road, and that's through Jesus. That's the only way to heaven. 
Jesus is the only way. And if you're a Christian and you say that, expect to be persecuted. Expect to be put down and canceled. That's a, uh, we live in a cancel culture too. So expect to get your voice canceled. Expect in social media to get banned or whatever they do to you. The truth is not in us. The truth is in God who created us. Amen? Amen. You agree? So God must draw a person to himself. He must lead a person inwardly. Something has to happen inside a person that persuades them, that urges them, that inspires them to seek Jesus. Another way of saying it is the light must go on. The light, they're in darkness, and the light has to go on. If you've ever wondered why some people don't care about God, don't want to go to church with you, they could care less where they end up when they die. They don't believe in heaven or hell. It's because the light hasn't gone on. I mean, that's just the simple truth. The light hasn't gone on. Which brings me to the golden lampstand. The golden lampstand was also in the tabernacle. The holy place and the most holy place were covered. There was four different coverings, so it would be dark in there unless there was a light, and there was. The golden lampstand was, was uh, kept by the priest, and it had three branches coming out on each side, seven total lamps, and it's called the menorah. You see the picture of it there? The golden lampstand would burn continuously. It would never go out. Every morning and night, the priest would tend to it. He would put the best olive oil in the cups so that the the flame would never go out. All Jews understood this. This was a common understanding that the light was in the tabernacle. So what Jesus says in 8.12, John chapter 8, verse 12, he says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. They got that. They understood that. Some people might read their Bible today and not really grasp that. That's why he said that. Jesus is the light of the world because many people are walking in darkness. That should concern you. The fact that in our community there are many people walking around in darkness, that should really break your heart. It really should. Many people you love, many people you care about, they're nice people, but they're not following Jesus. They're walking in darkness. The light hasn't gone on. And sadly, God has not prepared a room for those people. God doesn't prepare rooms for nice people. He puts rooms together, prepares them for people who put their faith in Jesus Christ, his son. John chapter 14 talks about a room in heaven. We like to quote it. I hear it every time there's a funeral. But God doesn't prepare rooms for nice people. He does it for those who put their faith in Christ. Now, you might be thinking, okay, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. You said God has to turn the light on. God has to draw people to himself so they can put their faith in Jesus. I know, right? You were thinking that. I li- that's why I like you guys. You're, you're on top of this. You're paying attention. How does God turn the light on? So God has to draw people to himself before they can put their faith in Christ. How does he do that? Romans 10 Verse 17, Paul tells us, faith comes from hearing. Hearing what? Hearing the word of Christ, the truth. 
And then in verse 14, he says, how will they call on him whom they have not believed? How are they to believe unless they've heard? And how are they to hear unless someone preaches? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? And as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. God turns the light on as you share the gospel. You've got to get that truth. It's got to sink in. When you share the gospel, when you share your story, God's going, click. The light's coming on. This week at Vacation Bible School, I taught the older kids, 4th, 5th, and 6th graders. Lord, I don't know how elementary teachers do it for 182 days. I did it for four days, three hours, and I'm exhausted. I'm going on vacation next week, okay, just because of EBS. No, I loved it. I love teaching the parables of Jesus. We got to, I got to teach those. And I told you detectives was our theme, so the cool part about parables are they have a, it's a simple story Jesus told with a hidden meaning. And only those that follow Jesus, that, that have eyes to uh, see and ears to hear, as, as Isaiah said, can understand it. And so I said, guys, you're detectives, and you're going to understand the hidden meaning. And we solved every case every day, and it was a lot of fun. But then on Wednesday, I got the chance to speak to the whole group as the pastor here. We had about 50 kids on average um, throughout the course of the week. And I explained to them the gospel. I shared the gospel with them. And I told you last week, the gospel is easy to explain. It's ABC, admit, believe, confess. When you share the gospel, you admit that you are a sinner, that you've broken the rules. I try to put it in the language of you know, what they can understand at their age. And you believe Jesus took the punishment on the cross. I said to him, you know, hey, would you, you know, get grounded for your friend? Would you take your brother's punishment? Yeah. They're like, no. Yeah. I know, me neither. But Jesus would, right? And he did. He took our punishment on the cross. And then you confess him as your Lord, as, as your number one. The gospel is easy as ABC. Now, young children are followers, they will do what everybody else is doing. If I say, you know, raise your hand if you want to go to heaven. Well, everybody's going to raise their hand. If I didn't do that, you know, that's, that's, I don't want to mislead them. So when I shared the gospel with them, I was careful to make it just be about them as an individual. And I asked them, you know, at the end of sharing, you know, the ABCs, just to answer the question in your head. I have a question for you. Just answer it in your head. Don't say it out loud. I said, do you want to trust in Jesus today? Or do you want to wait a little while? Do you want to trust in Jesus today? Or do you want to wait a little while? And if you want to trust in Jesus today, I want you to close your eyes, and I'm just going to say a few things that you could say to God, and just say simply, I, I want to put my faith in you, God. I want to trust in you, Jesus, to save me, to forgive me of my sins. And here's the thing. If God was drawing them to himself, as I shared the gospel of God's turning the light on, then when I said, if you, want to share, if you want to trust Jesus, then some of them did. And I asked my group on the next day, I said, did anybody close your eyes and, and say, yeah, I want to trust in Jesus? And many of them raised their hand. And that's really, really exciting because um, God had compelled them, he had persuaded them, um, something inside of them, we know that's the Holy Spirit, we call it regeneration. Jesus taught this in John 3. In John 3, verse 6, 
Jesus said to Nicodemus, this, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. When you're born, you're born from flesh. But that which is born of the spirit is spirit. And he said, don't marvel at this. You must be born again, meaning born by the Holy Spirit. And then Paul says in 2 Corinthians, if, you're in, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. That's why I say to you, as adults on Sunday, as teens, if something is stirring inside of you, if something feels like, man, uh, you know, the, like I, I'm getting a little choked up here, like something's going on, if you're feeling compelled or persuaded or inspired by God, don't leave without doing business with God. Don't let this moment pass you by. Take the time. Get right with the Lord. Surrender. Listen and respond to God. That's our act of worship. I heard a story of a little girl that was asked by her Bible teacher if she wanted to trust in Jesus today or does she want to wait a little while. In her head, she said, no, I think I'll wait a little while. And she left church with her parents. She got out to her car and something stirred. And she said, I have to talk to my Bible teacher. She ran back in the church. She ran up to her Bible teacher, and she said, I think I want to put my faith in Jesus today. And that teacher prayed with her. Amen. She became a Christian. God turned the light on. She responded and confessed. Isn't that amazing? What God can do and what God does? Yes. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for being the light of the world, for being the bread of life, for being the bread of the presence. I pray the light goes on for all of us as we walk with Jesus one step at a time. August 20th, two weeks away, we're having a baptism Sunday. One of those girls, Riley, uh, her grandpa's here, John, and uh, Riley will be baptized in two weeks. Uh, another young man will be baptized. If, if baptism is your next step, you should put that on your connection card, and, and I'll give you a call, and we'll talk about that. But as we sing our final song today, if God is moving in your spirit, if you sense that it's time, you need to make the decision to surrender to the Lord, then you can come forward here, you can kneel, you can stand, you can bow your head at your seat. But do business with God today. Don't let it wait. If you feel that Holy Spirit tugging on your heart, so I ask our team to come up so we can play our song. Will you pray with me? Lord, I thank you for this day. In this hour, I pray, Lord, that as many have heard the truth and that truth that sets us free would set them free. Father, may someone or may many respond to you in worship. May we put our faith in you today, Lord. Today is the day we come to worship you. In Jesus' name. And everyone said?